now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi. Hello to Boo Boo. Hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? So, a few episodes ago, I said if we keep recording, it will rain and help the farmers. Well, currently, half the country is on fire, so. <laughs> I'd like to just distance us from that. There's also a fire right here right now, as, as there always is, you know, in LA. So I could die at any moment, probably. I won't die, but maybe. Well, I'm not I'm not in the state where the fires are here, but they are very bad. And our, I think it's hilarious how our prime minister, despite being warned that this would happen because um, the federal and state governments cut funding to the fire authorities last year, they were just like, no. You don't need any money. It's fine. Um, also, don't talk about climate change because uh, that has nothing to do with what's happening currently. And it's like, well, actually, it has a lot to do with what's happening currently. People are asking them direct questions about the impact of climate change and why these fires have been so devastating, like four people have died. And the government just being like, oh, not today. You don't talk about that today. It's like, fucking hell, people are literally dying because of your inaction on climate change. And you're just like, oh, it's very rude to make it about climate change. Oh, God. And then Barnaby Joyce, who's a Nationals member of parliament, who's, I want to say, a blowhard. He said that two of the people that died were probably Greens voters anyway. Uh, In Hansard, which is in parliament, so it's above parliamentary privilege, so he can't be charged with slander or defamation for saying that. You guys have the most arcane rules. Like, it's, he can just say, are you saying he can say whatever he wants because of geographically where he's located? Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, if he says it in parliament, he has parliamentary privilege, so... um, That seems like that's the opposite of how it should work yeah like you should be held really, to a higher something... <laughs> yeah oh i'm sorry yeah, i totally crazy how that works i thought you said something else like he was in this neighborhood and um there's like a little radius there where it's like the free speech <laughs> hall for fat australian men no i said he said it uh in in hansard which is just the record of parliament don't worry as the podcast progresses i'll give you all um insights into australian politics because i feel like north americans have no concept of how it works um and maybe it's time you did when i arrived in carlotta i thought of the words marlo had said to me over 15 years ago dead men don't wear plaid huh dead men don't wear plaid i still don't know what it means Hello everyone, welcome to What's in the Basket. Uh, Today we are talking about something a little bit different uh, in terms of film noir to continue our Noirvember series. I'm Amelia and I'm joined by my two co-hosts Candice. Hello. And Tiff. Hi. Also known as Todd. Yes. (laughs) So today we're going to be taking a look at the 1982 film Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. 
which is not not a noir in the traditional sense and it's also technically not a neo-noir either. It's a comedy collage film, montage film, I guess. Um, but I'm not going to start talking about it quite yet. What I want to talk about first is film noir as a concept. So the phrase film noir was first coined um, by the French critic Nino Frank in 1946, but it wasn't really used by the stu- well anyone involved in making noir in the US at all during the time, you know, in the 40s, 50s. So it was never referred to as film noir. They were usually referred to as melodramas or thrillers or, you know, the qualities of the film noir genre were just inherent in that kind of stylistic filmmaking that they were doing. It wasn't something that they particularly um, used to describe themselves. So it's only been used to describe styles of film like that uh, retroactively. After the boom period of noir, we'd say, like even from last week, 1955 with the big combo was probably in the decline of noir. Sort of after that, in the 60s, there are a few examples of big noirs, but it sort of goes out of fashion until about the 1970s, where we have a few neo-noir pop up like Chinatown and Taxi Driver. Like they they have qualities of noir, but they're not they look quite different to the traditional noir. Then we move into a period where it's about 1980, Raging Bull comes out, um, and it takes a lot of cues from the noir film The Setup, and it sort of brings us back into a space where the audience is a little bit more interested in returning to these traditional genres. With that said, this kind of sets the stage for this revival of these noir themes. So we see a lot of different interpretations of those themes, uh, especially in the invention of cyber noir, like Blade Runner, we have this whole new shoot-off of noir that comes through. So anyway, with all of this happening, we return to the hero of this story, which in our case is the comedian, Steve Martin. Suddenly I realized she'd slipped me a mickey. My lips felt like two manhole covers. My tongue felt like it had hair on it. My ears started to ring. I felt like a dog. Woof! Woof, Huberman, woof! Come on. Let's go out dancing. You put on your black dress, and I'll go shave my tongue. In yeah, mid 1980s, Steve Martin was having lunch with director Carl Reiner and the screenwriter George. I'm gonna say Gipe, but that sounds wrong. G I P E. That does sound it does wrong. Sound but I don't wrong. know how else. It's okay. I I said Billy Chapin like 45 times. So <laughs> Billy Chapin. <laughs> I called the big combo the big noir last week. So <laughs> well, um... it is the big noir. So <laughs> anyway, so he was Steve Martin was sitting down and having lunch with director Carl Reiner and screenwriter George Gripe in mid 1980, and they were discussing a screenplay Martin had written when he suggested that they use a clip from an old film. So this is kind of at the root of what this whole film is about. Initially, it was uh, planned to be a 1930s era film titled Depression. After Rainer incorporated some footage from the 30s into the movie, he and Martin decided that the entire movie should be done that way and rewrote it into a mock detective story. So essentially, they have somewhat of a script. They take in clips from older films and they're like, man, this looks sick. Let's do it. So in terms of the plot, it's a pretty formulaic detective story. But I think where it gets its interest and colour from is definitely one with how they use the montage clips and how they intersplice it and almost seamlessly 
incorporate it in sort of a really surreal and ridiculous way. But then also with Steve Martin's own brand of comedy, which works on multiple levels. This film came right after his Steve Martin's foray into drama, which was Pennies from Heaven. So this is the film that he worked on after he'd worked on that. So it is quite a shift between that and it also marks the beginning of his I think three film partnership with Carl Rayner. Reiner, wherein they made The Man with Two Brains and um, All of Me. It's also stylistically a, an interesting movie, and I think it was it was a bold decision to make a movie that utilizes a, an old Hollywood vernacular, especially a movie that's made in black and white, because there is this vogue that starts in, in the late 60s with movies that are set in the kind of semi-recent American past, like the 20s, 30s, 40s, um, that they kind of kind of zo- dominate the zeitgeist for a little bit. You know, you have a... You've got the Bonnie and Clyde, you know, uh, the thoroughly modern Millie kind of era. And that starts to to tail off in in the 70s because even though there's kind of initially a spate of movies that are well-received and and do really well, um, you know, like Paper Moon, uh, the Godfather movies, Peter Bogdanovich ends up making A a Long Last Love, which is a ginormous flop, one of the biggest flops probably in Hollywood history. And then the industry gets kind of snake-bitten about making movies that are that kind of referential to um, that particular era and to specifically to kind of Hollywood culture, the culture of the industry specifically. And it's kind of interesting that after everyone else backs off on it and you see a decline of, of studio interest in making movies like that, um, Steve Martin just stuck with it, you know. I mean, Three Amigos is about silent movie stars. And Mr. Flugelman says you're not to come back on this lot, ever. Look, boys, I know show business. Something always turns up. Telegram from the Three Amigos. I mean, there is kind of an interesting push from him to continue making movies that at the time are are unfashionable or seen as a risk, which, of course, is because he has that star power and he drew in uh, friends of his who also had enormous star power. Three Amigos wouldn't have been made by anyone else, but it's it's still very interesting. And I, and I love to see how Dead Men Don't Wear Platt embraces different stylistic elements and utilizes them so well at a time when, again, this was seen as maybe not uh, a studio bean counter's favorite prospect. I think on one level, the fact that it was so successful in the way that it worked was that it wasn't so much a let's indulge in, you know, the days of yore with like self-reverential look at Hollywood. It was more, I guess, accessible in the way that it's like, we all know this, we have experienced this, let's laugh about it kind of thing. Like I think the introduction of comedy to the the styles helps renew it but also mm-hmm. helps engage it in and the audience in a completely different way that perhaps they hadn't seen before or even thought they could before and it's just really successful on that level yeah i mean it's just it's affectionate in a way that a lot of other movies ab- about this particular subject aren't you know this is also the era of mommy dearest Mm -hmm. Uh, you have preceding that you have something like the Carol Baker, Jean Harlow biopic. There's, isn't that some, there's some, there's some terrible movie where somebody plays Carol Lombard, the title of which isn't coming to mind right now. I think there's a Gable and Lombard movie with them. Yes. Okay. Yes. Is it Um, uh, not Josh Berlin? (laughs) 
fucked. <laughs> the other one. The older one. Yeah, with James Roland. Right. Yeah. I was like, hold on. The blondes are... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got that. You got the, the horrible James Roland, uh, Gable and Lombard movie. Um, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is, is art in a way that those movies aren't. Bogdanovich really tried with a long last love, but he didn't succeed. Dead Man is, is art, but it also delivers its references in such a clever way that not only does it work purely on the level of a comedy and like you said is accessible to people who are not familiar with these movies but it doesn't at all at any moment come across as infantilizing or condescending or paternalistic about older movies mm. in a way that a lot of these other movies are oh, and I think they failed because the tenor was wrong yeah i feel like a lot of those movies that sort of were like almost fawning over the old hollywood days they're quite pretentious in some way and also just like, wow, look at look at how we are, look at how Hollywood is, look how yeah, you know, either it's either like look how glam- glamorous it was or look how salacious it was. Yeah. It's insincere. I think well, on one level this film isn't talking about any of the private lives of these stars, but it's also it celebrates them without making fun of them. Like it it makes um fun of it as a style but it doesn't make fun of the individual films themselves the stars in them um which i think it's just it's good humored and it's just it's fun steve martin has such a good he's got such good taste you never feel like in, in a steve martin production anyone is the butt of a joke and he has dealt with some some kind of risky material in the past mm. you know like the only person that's ever the butt of a joke is himself exactly like if we look at Roxanne and films like that it's like he's the one that we're laughing at but then it's like it's never we're laughing at him in a mean way he's inviting us to laugh kind of with him it's a fondness and I think he also in that way echoes a lot of the great clowns of the past that sense of of rapport that you have with him as the uh, in the audience and the fondness that you have for him and the fondness he also has for the audience it's very Mm -hmm. much like a a two-way relationship in a way that a lot of people um, have kind of done away with. Steve Martin is very much a classical movie star in that vein. I think he embraces the idea of the audience bond, whereas a lot of other people, a lot of other comedians want to be all cerebral and think that they're above the idea of people connecting with them on that purely human level and not on the level of appreciating their gift, you know, Mm. whatever. He's kind of like, I'm going to say this, and you're going to hate this when I say this, but like, if you imagine a coin... And there's two sides to this coin. And one side is Steve Martin. And the other side is Rob Schneider. Okay? <laughs> and they both understand what people want from them when they go to the movies. But with Steve Martin, it's because you go and you expect an experience and you come out and you go, finally, some good fucking food. But Martin reminds me a lot of, I mean, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of comparisons that go around to different comedians, but he does remind me of more of like a, like a, a buster. How there's that sense of like, oh, you know, that Sally Field, fake Sally Field, misinterpreted quote, you know, you like me, you really like me element to him that's very earnest and very honest and i think people see that and i think they appreciate that and they connect with it and again like i obviously am not in the position to talk about like the racial politics of something like the jerk for example but the i was a poor black child sequence could so easily in the hands of of another white comic be very dicey whereas Mm -hmm. with him it's not he again he is always the butt of the joke he there no one else is the butt of the joke you know it's kind of like that mel brooks approach to it where it comes back to the hero of the movie always being the one who's meant to absorb any kind of 
audience pushback or contempt. Um, but you never are truly contemptuous of a Steve Martin character because you can't be contemptuous of Steve Martin because everybody loves him. Anyway, I just can't stop thinking about this movie in comparison with that Bogdanovich movie at Long Last Love, which was meant to be a throwback to like the classic, like, you know, like Fred and Ginger kind of dynamic and how horrendously that went and how this movie is so successful. Because even though they have things in common, you know, Bogdanovich paid very close attention to the visuals of it, the visuals of, you know, Art Deco and color and all those things it just didn't work on a level that this movie works this movie works like a goddamn sliding puzzle it it, it, it's so intricate and it's set up of all the gags and yet at the same time it never never breaks any sort of credulity You, you really do fully believe in the story that he's presenting even though you anticipate the clips that are coming but there's never the you never see the the man behind the curtain you know the wizard is never visible and it's just such a well-executed movie. Well, on that, I guess we should talk about what the film is and what it's about. Oh, um, yeah, probably. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's interesting. It's a detective story. And I know we've spent a lot of time this noir season saying that noir films aren't wholly and solely about detectives. <laughs> um, but this one is Steve Martin plays Rigby Reardon, a detective. And it's one of his few roles where he doesn't have his trademark silver hair and he's got sort of his like silver fox oval team black shoe <laughs> polish hair that he has i think it's like only one of three films where he has dark hair you called it his dana hair while we his, dana his dana hair oval his dana team. andrews hair like i'm talking dana andrews circa 1965 um where he like i don't know what he was putting in his hair but it was yeah um, motor oil probably motor oil and and cocoa powder is what it looks like in uh <laughs> Hot rods to hot, hell. Hot rods to hell. I almost <laughs> call it hot to hot. I just, you know, it reflex. Take their insane. All of them. I can't stand it. They're trying to kill us, Peg. We've got to do business on their terms. Get back. No limit. No limit. No limit. Run him off the road, Duke. Run him off the road. <laughs> Day and night, night and day, these kids will try anything for kicks. It opens on him, he's our gumshoe detective, and in walks Rachel Ward as Juliet Forrest with a case for him about the death of her father, um, who died in a mysterious car crash. And it's all about this interwoven conspiracy about all this cruise liner and friends of Carlotta, enemies of Carlotta. And, like, obviously it follows the noir formula. He goes investigating. He wears multiple disguises. Um, he dresses up as a woman twice. He and Juliet Forrest have romantic interludes. And then it all builds up. And then at the end, there are Nazis. So in terms of actual notes on this movie, there aren't a lot. There isn't a lot of information about the production and the reception. But I'll just, I'll give you what I've got before we get into which films were used in this. When we're talking about the production, I think it's fair to say that it was meticulously done and sort of lovingly crafted. The filmmakers really wanted to, I guess, capture that feeling. So they enlisted a lot of people that helped define the look and the feel of many classic films from the 1940s. So they employed Edith Head, who created 20 suits for Martin in a similar fashion to those worn by Cary Grant, James Stewart during that era. 
And this was Edith Head's last film. There's like a dedication to her at the end of the film. Production designer John DeCure, a veteran with 40 years of experience, he designed 85 sets for this film. It's a lot of sets to be making for a film, especially in 1982 when a lot of... not. A, lot of sound stages and things were being used to this scale. No. The thing is they wanted to match them to each of the bits of footage that they had so they had to sit down and watch the scenes that they were going to be using and then carefully reconstruct sets to match those. So it would look seamless when Steve Martin was interacting and it would be the two shots, one on Steve Martin then one on the clip that they were using so it would look seamless when they went from one to the other. I didn't even think about that. That's so much work. Yeah, so it was definitely above average and there were like a lot of scenes that they needed to do this to. And the director of photography, Michael Chapman, studied the angles and lighting popular at the time and conducted six months of research with Technicolor to try and match the old film clips to his new footage. So they did a lot of colour grading and everything to get it looking as much as he could. And you can still obviously tell because the quality of the print of some of the films is so decidedly different to what Steve Martin is being shot in. Mm-hmm. But like if this had been made now with the film restoration technology that we have now, what are we thinking it would have been like just cutting in what they had, like panned and scanned almost. I know. <laughs> like to get these clips in there. If it was done now though, I feel like it would almost rip the soul out of it. There's such an analog feel to this movie and that beautiful nitrate, that texture. Um, mm. I love the fact that the clips are off and some of them are slightly out of focus and some are in better print, you know, the quality condition. Yeah, the print's in better condition. Like the glass key is a really great print. This gun for hire is a really great print, but then the print they have of the killers is a shitty print. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it, I, it's it's sweet. It's sweet and it, it has... I don't know, just a, a, a unique beauty to it that I think would be lost with a, a smoother, maybe more technically proficient modern splicing technique. But I think that's also part of the charm of it. Dead Men recreates that experience that you would have had watching these movies on like a fuzzy television set on KTLA on a Sunday morning, you know, watching a Basil Rathbone movie. Which is how, like, at the time when this came out in 1982, most of the audience would have been watching these films if they had been watching them at all. So it is reflective of that time, and I think it's just also, it's nice. It's like, it doesn't matter if it looks different, because that's still part of the joke. (laughs) Like Exactly. It still functions. Realistically, if they were to do this today, they would fucking recreate every scene with CGI like James Dean Vietnam War vet okay what would be the most fucked up CGI (laughs) person in this okay hold on let me let me scan through this movie in my mind I like the idea of a CGI lad Alan Ladd because (laughs) would the terms and conditions dictate that he be taller and CGI that he released. I also also love how in this movie, when Martin interacts with Lad, they used a shorter actor. So the guy who's playing Lad is probably like 5'5 five five or something, which I just <laughs> think is so cute because, you know, realism. Martin knows what's going on. It's also so wonderful to me that this was also shot at Culver Studios, which at the time when film noir was at its height was, was Selznick. So there is kind of this ghostly sense of kind of, I don't know, retracing steps maybe that makes it all the odder 
that very cool element that you wouldn't get if this were shot just on a generic modern soundstage, you know? If this were shot at the World of Wonder Studios where RuPaul films Drag Race and Simi Valley, it wouldn't be quite the same. No. <laughs> <laughs> as being able to, to to kind of bond with the stars of the past and some scary haunted building that Thomas Ince once worked in. Very cool. Yeah, there are scenes where they've got their back to the cameras, like over the shoulder. Martin is directly interacting with them and it just it just helps bring the, the actors in those clips a little bit out of the frame that they've been forced into. But like even the scene where they're in the train carriage together, him and Cary Grant and they're like been perfectly spliced together so they're in the same shot at the same time oh I beg your pardon was that your leg no it was my face I had no idea we were going into a tunnel I'm sure I thought the compartment was empty yeah right uh-huh. sure oh so sorry I hope I didn't hurt you it's all right What do I owe the pleasure of your company? Off a man in the next compartment smoking a vile cigar. Had to come in here. You don't smoke, do you? Oh, no, I have tuberculosis. Oh, thank heavens for that. After last night, my head couldn't stand it. It's still delightful to see it. Oh, it's, just, it's beautiful. It's, it's so nice. Um, it's so well constructed. Like, obviously, before they read the script, they found all of the clips that they wanted to use. Like, they had some vague understanding of how the story was going to be, and they found all these clips, and then they wove the dialogue around that. And I think that's it's really impressive when you think about it because the dialogue in this is so clever. Carlotta was the kind of town where they spell trouble, T-R-U-B-I-L. And if you try to correct them, they kill you. Steve Martin, obviously, is an incredible comedian, incredible comedic talent, and a wonderful writer. The wordplay in this is so funny, but also so closely tied to noir. Like, it's hilarious. <laughs> I know. I like the I like the, the bit where, at the very, very beginning of the movie, when she goes, cheese was daddy's hobby, which is like, the, that happens so many times in film noir movies, where it's like, I need you to find someone. <laughs> he did this, but also, this is what he was involved in, but this is probably why he's dead. I mean, it's just such a specific specific gag. Your name, Dollface? Juliet Forrest. Forrest. Daughter of the big cheesemaker. You could use a cup of my famous Java. Cheese was daddy's hobby. He was a scientist. And it just, it makes you feel like they know so much about these they movies. They know film, yeah. And that, that they love so them so much that they want to include all of these nods to them. Like there's the, um, when Juliet says, oh, you know how to use a phone, don't you? If you need me, just call. You know how to dial, don't you? You just put your finger in the hole and make tiny little circles. Which is the, you know, Lauren Bacall line. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. And it's just, it's nice little nods to this. It elevates it. It's like a film lover's kind of dream. Like everyone's in on the joke. Everyone's having fun. But then also there's the great visual humor, like when he walks home on his knees and, <laughs> <laughs> and she's getting ready to put the rubbing alcohol on his knees and he whips out his gun to try and stop her. 
sorry, dollface. Wow. But it's a lucky thing I had my pieces. Your, your pieces? My guns. Oh. Nice. I, anyway, I started blasting. Bang! Wow. Bang! Well, I don't see so good, so I missed. Then they ran away. I ran after them. Okay. Bang! Try to shoot them in the back. But I don't want so good either. It's so funny, but then he like he tries to walk away and he falls on his knees and he does the great ow, ow, and he falls on his knees. I found another note Daddy wrote to himself. Nitag 216. I think it's a New York license plate number. Not bad, dollface, unless I'm... Oh. Ah. Let me get you some alcohol. No! <laughs> There's also the, the gags um, and the clips that they arise from are so well integrated into the narrative. Like you said, they wrote it around it. But like one of my favorite bits is when they show the clip of Humphrey Bogart in Dark Passage and he's on the phone with him and he's like, Martin's like, oh, make sure to wear a tie. And then when Bogey as Philip Marlowe shows up at the Reardon Detective Agency, it's a clip from uh, In a Lonely Place where Bogart isn't wearing, he's just wearing a shirt. And then yeah. Martin's got this bit where it's like, I told you to wear a tie. I hate it when you just wear a shirt like that. And he gives him like that, that clip on clip bow tie. On. It's just <laughs> such a funny bit. Yeah, I want you to hustle on over here. Girl, I'll make you a cup of my famous Java. Uh, I'd rather buy my own. Suit yourself. See you in a half hour. And Marlowe. Wear a tie, for God's sake. Hello, Marlowe. Damn it. You didn't do what I told you. You know how I hate that dumb way of wearing a shirt button with no tie. Let me get you a tie. Here. This one's blue, but you can wear it with brown. You annoy me. I annoy you. You come in here with no tie. You drunk? How many have you had? One martini. I knew I was going to see you. Sit down. There's a list of names. I found it in a bowl of soup. Don't ask me to explain. I think they're all dead. I want you to check them out. Marlon, put this on for me, huh? As a favor. It's a clip-on. You know, I, I just... Watching every part of it is just such a such a great idea. I mean, that build-up to the Walter Neff sequence, you know, the double indemnity bit, where you're like, <laughs> how is he going to get involved with Fred McMurray... In double indemnity, and, she, it out <laughs> and that, then you know, he's this, dressed as Barbara Stanwyck. He's dressed as Barbara Stanwyck, and in this universe, <laughs> Frederick Murray just loves to, you know, he's always prowling the grocery stores looking for hot blondes or not so hot blondes. In Martin's case, I mean, it's just such a. <laughs> and they, they keep showing Stanwyck oh. from behind too, and they don't acknowledge yes. the like the, dramatic the difference in body difference, size. Yes. <laughs> How oh. wide Steve Martin's shoulders are. I love that oh. visual of Steve Martin walking in the high heels, just clomping through his office. Just like, if I'm half the dame, I think I am. Do I look like a dame? Not as much as I do. I haven't turned on the charm yet. Oh, Rigby, I wish you'd let me go instead. Have Neff try and feel you up? No chance, dollface. Oh, you don't want Mr. Neff to feel me up? That doesn't mean you're beginning to care for me, does it? I don't want any of my clients felt up. I'm late. Marlo told me that Neff cruises supermarkets every Thursday looking for blondes. I'm half the woman I think I am. I'll have a date with Neff by tonight. I was going to say uh, Cagney shooting him through the trunk. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, in the clip from White Heat. I mean, just the way they incorporate these clips into the narrative. And it's just, it's so clever. And you walk away with it being so impressed by the really adroit utilization of all these movies and the particular feel that each of them lends to it because he pulls from noirs that are so disparate um, stylistically 
and in terms of time. And I also love the fact that the movie's bridge, you know, you've got something like Johnny Eager at the very front loaded, you know, end of noir. And then you have movies that are much later on, you know, in the, in the classical noir sequence, book ending at the other end, something like Sorry, Wrong Number. Yeah, yeah. I do have an, uh, one fun fact for you. There, there's like a running gag where Steve Martin always gets shot in the same place in his arm. Yeah. And he's like, he makes the joke when he gets shot the second time. He's like, oh, God, this is never going to heal. <laughs> but it's also the same place he keeps getting shot in Three Amigos. <laughs> Oh my god, I never noticed that. Um, so that's a like a oh. little inside joke for you. Also, I think in terms of the visual gags, another great one is all of the magic that Steve Martin uses. Yes. Um, like the sleight of hand. Like in one of this is my mother's favorite scene in the whole movie. She loves it so much. But when he's like, Oh, I know what you need. You need a cup of my Java to Burke Lancaster, and he he gets the coffee and then is pouring it out of the bag for like a good two minutes. <laughs> and it just, it's so beautifully timed that he just, he like, he's doing it and then he stops and then he does this big sigh. He's like, <sighs> and then he starts again. And like, that's all magic. I was on Reddit and I was like, how did you do that? And it's like apparently a certain way that you just pour the coffee out so it looks like you're pouring more coffee out than you actually are. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, wow, everything, every single detail is just like no stone unturned. Um, he's a triple threat. Magic, verbal comedy, physical comedy, banjo, anything you want, he's got it. <laughs> I will just say I Steve Martin and Martin Short are actually in my city this weekend and I... I only saw the poster for the night where they were playing and I was so disappointed. I was like, oh, imagine going to see them. But I had a work function, so I couldn't have gone anyway. But I was like, what are the chances? It's a sign. Steve, it's a come sign. on the pod. Steve, come on the pod. We love you. Let's talk planes, trains, and automobiles. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down. You want something? Uh, he's probably drunk. You're going the wrong way. What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way! Oh, he's drunk! How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you, thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you! <laughs> what a moron. One of the other running gags in this movie is when Rigby goes berserk whenever anyone says cleaning woman. Oh, if I'm not home, leave a message with the butler or the cleaning woman. Cleaning woman. Cleaning woman. Cleaning woman. Cleaning woman! Sorry. 
<laughs> so I just want to talk a little bit about that. It's um, actually a homage to a vaudeville skit called Slowly I Turned. So it has a long history in vaudeville, like, and then following from vaudeville, it's obviously obviously been employed by lots of different people. Abbott and Costello used it. The Three Stooges used it. I think there's an example of it on I Love Lucy. The Routine is a pretty stock standard one. It features a man recanting the day he took revenge on his enemy and becoming so engrossed in his own tale that he attacks the innocent listener to whom he is speaking. When the attacker comes to his senses, he goes berserk again when the listener says something that triggers the old memory. And then I came face to face with a rat that had ruined my life. It was in Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls! Slowly I turned, and step by step, inch by inch, I walked up to him and I smashed him. I hit him. I popped him. I smashed him to pieces and I knocked him down. Oh! Oh, take it easy, boy. Take it easy. Excuse me, kid. It's that word Niagara Falls. Every time I hear it, it tears me apart. Don't do me any good either. So this happens multiple times in the film. And the first time it happens, it's a bit like, what the fuck is happening? But then it's brought around so nicely at the end. Carl Reiner is the Nazi. <laughs> and he said he based his performance on that of Otto Prominger. Um, <laughs> My favorite movie Nazi. When he turns around and he says, what does Hanumaka Frau mean? And... You know, he says, cleaning woman, and gets it. It's so nice that it's just brought around, like, this completely bizarre thing. And then it's the hero of the day. It's so funny. It's just, it's so masterfully done. I've just been thinking about how, like, densely knowledgeable Martin comes off with stuff like this, that vaudeville skit that I was not aware of until right now. It's just, you feel like he has so much knowledge that he's putting into this and so much affection for the material. And... I don't know, I was also thinking about, like, Pennies from Heaven as, like, a counterpart to this, which is not a comedy. It's a very deeply disturbing movie that I find very unpleasant to watch. But it's also, like, it's not a montage film, but it's got, like, they lip sync to, you know, musical numbers from the 30s and 20s and shit. And it's just, you just feel like he really knows. I mean, obviously, that's a remake of a BBC miniseries. It's not Martin's material. But you feel like he knows and really does love the stuff that he's sending up. And uh, I think it really comes through in a movie like this. And it still manages to surprise me. Like, again, how I think it was in the big combo episode, Laura. I don't remember when I was like, oh, pfft, Betty Davis didn't make a film noir. And then I'm watching this movie and I'm like, oh, fuck, right. Betty Davis did make a film noir because there's that whole interaction where Martin's talking about how... The most remarkable thing about Davis's character in this movie is how she's, she always has stale bread and how she always makes toast <laughs> out of it to cover the fact she's stale bread. And then, and then Davis is like, well, you know, the bread's, uh, the bread is stale. Would you like me to make toast? And it's just, it's such a good, you know, such a good bit. Now I remember Doris's famous stale bread sandwiches. Should buy day old bread and then toast it to cover up. I wonder if she's changed. The bread's none too fresh. Shall I toast it? Uh, no, thanks. I gave up stale toast for Lent. Left? Nothing. Same old Doris. It's such a good gag, and there's always something to rediscover every time I see this movie, which to me, again, is the mark of a great movie, especially a movie that is set in the past, is that it is textured and it's it's got a great tone to it and that there's always something rich and rewarding about it. And every time there's just some new detail, like I emerged from it this time being really, really admiring the, the tie 
that he wears in the initial scene, you know, when he's doing the intake at the at the detective agency hearing about the case. And it's just, it's I just these little things every single time. It's like, oh, the details are so, just such an immaculately crafted movie. Like, even down to, like, his strike anywhere match that he's always Oh, like, yeah. Oh. We've talked about craft in filmmaking a lot. And I feel like this film is a perfect example of love and craft yeah love of film love of craft coming together to make this thing that is so rich and so meticulously detailed and i'd say adoringly put together 85 uh sets and edith head making so many costumes for it like all of juliet's beautiful gowns and everything her wonderful hats it's like oh there's someone who enjoys film like I enjoy film kind of thing. It's like a nice feeling. I think that's why I shy away from calling it a parody. Like, because a lot of people, I guess, think of a parody film in the same vein as they think of like scary movie where this film is really not in that territory at all. It feels like a tribute. It feels like, I mean, it's actively making fun of a lot of these tropes. Yeah. But at the same time, it doesn't feel mean-spirited when it does that. You walk away feeling like you could have a really fun conversation with, you know, Steve Martin and Carl Reiner about, like, old movies. Like, you feel like you're in the same club. And, like, even at its silliest, like, with the, oh, sorry, your boobs fell out of whack. And, like... <laughs> <laughs> And the, one of my absolute favorite scenes with Edward Arnold, where Steve Martin has the puppy. Mr. Allfeld, it's true that by helping me, your daughter's life is in danger. She may save hundreds of other lives. You wouldn't stand in the way of that, would you? Why, certainly I would. I'd frame you or kill you if it would protect my daughter. And I brought you a puppy. Something you never had as a boy. Oh, get out. You don't deserve a puppy. Wait! Pick that up. But it's all soft and steamy. Pick that up! You're a sick man, Altfell. <laughs> it's so ridiculous and so silly and juvenile, but it's still so enjoyable. Ugh. Oh my god, when he's on the phone with Stanwick and the clip from Sorry, Wrong Number, and then she, and then he's like, well, your father's dead. And she's like, ah, oh, he can't be. I just talked to him on the phone tonight. And he's like, well, your dad. And he's just looking at, you know, he's looking at her like, your sister's a nut job. You know, ugh. <laughs> it's so, and it's so dull. And I was thinking when I was, when we were watching it, the specificity of a lot of, of the details in the, in the costuming, back to the genius of a, a lot of these, the people who worked on this movie, Edith Head, and then also, I don't know if there's some, you know, sort of like use of costume archives. I don't know if somebody was able to go over to, to Western costume and dig things up, but the um, the details that would otherwise just, if you weren't dealing with people who were veterans of the studio system and who had that exquisite attention to detail, things that would fell by the wayside, like the brooch that a- Ava Gardner drops in the soup, mm-hmm. you know, is such <laughs> such an excellent piece. And the pattern on the back of Ingrid Bergman's gown from Notorious, it's not just the same gown. Down in, in a superficial design what would have been fine for other people like you look at it fast enough then you're like okay you know whatever it passes for it but no even the the sequins on the back the sequin beading kind of thing it even like reflects light and it glints in the same way and again i don't know if that's the same dress they might have been able to find that dress or if it's just a, an extremely faithful recreation but the fact that any effort on that level was put into it at all is so mm. special 
I mean, a lot of the hair, uh, a lot of the hair that the women have in this movie um, when they're taken from old clips is extremely specific. Something like Veronica Lake's hair or that horrible Mare of Whoville thing that <laughs> Bergman has in Toy which is my least favorite movie hairstyle of all time. It's like nails on a chalkboard to me. Anyway, it just fucking irritates me every single time. But the, the attention to detail and the masterful use of all those little tiny period details. The brooch in the soup is one of my favorite moments in the whole movie because it's like, God, that is such a good... Somebody else was just gotten a cheap-ass piece of costume jewelry, some cheap-ass, you know, paste diamond, rhinestone bullshit, the first thing you could find in, you know, whatever kind of studio costume assets you had and just run with it. But no, they didn't do that because they were making a real goddamn movie. That's how I would describe this movie. A real goddamn movie. Well, yeah, I guess now we should we should talk about how many real goddamn movies they used in this real goddamn oh, movie. Oh, there's a lot of real goddamn movies in this. They credited 18 movies, but they actually used 19 movies, technically, if you want to get into it. The car crash at the beginning is the Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy film, Keeper of the Flame. Part of me wishes they'd used the car crash from The Invisible Man where the, the car just goes off the cliff and then explodes midair. Um, that would have been much more hilarious. But um, uh, if we're going to go chronologically, the first clip aside from The Keeper of the Flame is that of Alan Ladd in This Gun for Hire, which obviously we, we've already talked about in some fashion. I particularly love when he's like, have a cookie. There's some cookies on the table. Have one. Good, aren't they? Like, even the pacing in that clip is so, so good. And he's like, oh, isn't it good or whatever? And then Lad's just chewing in that horrible way he does. And then we go from there to Barbara Stanwyck, obviously, in Sorry, Wrong Number. And, I mean, I think the way that is cut is so nice because it's, like, obviously two very different scenes are happening. Then we have Ray Milan from The Lost Weekend, which some people don't consider a noir. I consider a noir because it's, I guess, it's one man's battle with himself and his addiction. Obviously, we have Ava Gardner from two different films, The Killers and The Bribe, and Burt Lancaster from The Killers as well. Then Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe from The Big Sleep in The Lonely Place and A Dark Passage. Cary Grant is just credited as Handsome Guy uh, from Suspicion, and Ingrid Bergman from Notorious. Veronica Lake from The Glass Key. Betty Davis from Deception. Lana Turner from Johnny Eager and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Edward Arnold, also from Johnny Eager. Kirk Douglas from I Walk Alone. He's only credited as lead thug. Fred McMurray from Double Indemnity. James Cagney from White Heat. Joan Crawford from Humoresque. Charles Lawton as the fat one who sweats a lot from The Bribe. And Vincent Price from The Bribe also, who we noted... Was a little bit in his doughboy face. Fat bitch in chief. He's a little soft. <laughs> love He's it. A little, mm, little chunk. But I, I really love the Vincent Price scenes because it's just, it's so perfectly woven together, like in a way that you wouldn't normally see. Like all the rest of the crew, the Eclipse user, a little bit contained in the way that they are structured. But because he's chasing Vincent Price, it's just a little bit more dynamic. And also, I think that works really well to showcase what a unique acting style Price had mm. in the sense that he, he seems very at home in this contemporary film. Yeah. That it contains modern acting styles in a way that some of the other actors don't for obvious reasons, you know, just stylistically. 
um, there is something that really feels like almost like if you didn't know and if you weren't in on the joke, you might not realize that this is something that's that's cut in. It's very well integrated into into the plot and is again such a loving tribute. I think I think Price in particular, that's it's a very sweet kind of nod to a very weird time in Vincent Price's career, you know, <laughs> as everything starts to starts to turn towards, you know, this the second act of, of his career where he starts making otter and otter movies, and this is an odd movie. I love that, and I love the conversation that he has at the bar with Lawton. We know who you are, Mr. Rigby. I'm interested. Who am I? You could be a guy who collects $10,000 just to leave this stinking town. I could, could I? You know who I could be? Hunchback of Notre Dame. I could be the guy who hands you them $10,000. $10,000. Me to you. Just like that. Sorry. My price for leaving stinking towns is 11500 and a kiss on the lips from Carmen Miranda. I think that part of the movie is really strong. I think that whole Carlotta sequence is, you know, where they're down in Peru is so great because it touches upon another one of my favorite aspects of noir, which are the vague kind of like exotic travel you know what i mean like we're we're globetrotting except not really because a lot of the time we have to go down there on some sort of you know working on some sort of ship you know as yeah. as fishermen or whatever but we got to get down to the port it reminded me really well of, of kind of something like robert mitchum and jane russell and his kind of woman you know that yeah. that kind of sleepy village very racist approach from these old movies but used in it's just such a, again it goes back to the idea that the people who made this movie have seen a lot of noir and and they understand the conventions of the genre. And that's, again, what's always crucial for me. Sorry, the dog is barking in the background. I apologize to everybody. She's an asshole. <laughs> and that's part of what, it, to me, is crucial about a movie like this. One reason why a movie like this works is because it doesn't go for the obvious. There are very few bits and pieces of this movie that I think of as being really obvious film noir nods. I think maybe bogey is Philip Marlowe is a little too on the nose. I've always kind of felt like that way. I don't know if he really needed to be Philip Marlowe. But otherwise, I think it, it definitely benefits from having some of the, kind of the B-sides, you know, incorporating a movie like Johnny Eager. And again, not using a typical Lake performance, you know, going to Glass Key, which is a little bit more of an obscurity. Yeah, it is. Um, it was quite underdeveloped in the sense of it being a noir film but then I was doing some reading and The Big Sleep borrows a lot from The Glass Key um, which is really interesting a lot of the films that they use in this aren't necessarily the most noir of noirs I guess it goes to showcase how a lot of these films that perhaps weren't considered noir noirs actually were because they used all of these stylistic convention yeah i mean the two hitchcocks is, is or, you know that's a great example suspicion and notorious the twin the, tw the hitch twins the gruesome twosome i mean i can i can drop a sick fact about suspicion if you like when i was researching i did find out that originally um it was meant to be a b picture and star george sanders and Anne shirley but then when alfred hitchcock became attached to the project obviously the budget increased and our favourite, Laurence Olivier, and Francis D, Candace's favourite, oh, wow. set to star, but obviously that didn't work out. Maybe for the best. That's a pairing. And uh, eventually Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine were cast. So it's like, just thinking about the weird parallel universe that would have been if Laurence Olivier was in suspicion. It, it really chaps my ass how Frances never got to have like a really great part because she's so funny and that would not be a good movie for that because Suspicion isn't a funny movie. <laughs> 
but I mean, I think it's kind of funny, I guess. Like, what does she think is going to happen? Sorry, you know, RIP to Joan Fontaine and Suspicion, but I'm different. Uh, Notorious, it's a weird film in that it's like Grant and Ingrid Bergman is a weird pairing as it is. Not one that you'd immediately think of as a great screen pairing. Uh, and lots of people felt the same way. Uh, David O. Selznick, he lobbied really hard to get Cary Grant replaced with Joseph Cotton. Uh, and this was his argument for trying to get him replaced. Like it came out or it was being developed when the United States had just dropped the atomic bombs in Japan. And Selznick argued that the first film out about atomic weaponry would be the most successful and Grant was not available for three months. Oh my God. <laughs> Selznick also believed that Grant would be difficult to manage and make high salary demands. But the most telling of all was that Selznick owned Cotton's contract. I was going to say... And then Hitchcock wanted uh, Clifton Webb to play Alexander Sebastian. Okay. Selznick pressed for Claude Rains. Eventually Hitchcock agreed. But like, imagine Clifton Webb in that part. I love it. I hate it. I. <laughs> it's everything to me. I actually really like. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna propose an idea for you. What if instead it was suspicion, right? So you got you got suspicion. You've got uh, you got you got Olivier. Okay, and you got Francis D. And then instead of Nigel Bruce, um, you have Clifton Webb. And I think that would be a really cool, fun dynamic, especially because I love the idea of Webb and Olivier supposed to be like old school chums, you know? I think that's a really good idea. I like the idea of Clifton Webb just inexplicably playing a man in his 40s or whatever, and there's just no, there's nothing about it. There's just no, you know, he is, does it remind me of the movie Mr. Scoutmaster, in which inexplicably, for people who have never seen it, Francis D. plays Clifton Webb's wife, which wow. is really a, a casting stretch that because he looks like he's old enough to be her grandfather and also it's Clifton Webb <laughs> well it's also like yeah because Clifton Webb and Myrna Loy were a married couple in Cheaper by the Dozen the original and it's just like that's weird that's a weird pairing also I don't like thinking about the idea of Myrna Loy being old enough to be um like Jean Crane's mother <laughs> I don't like that concept because even though I know it's technically possible, um, it's not I'm a good s- concept. I did gloss over the Kirk Douglas Burt Lancaster movies because I'm just not interested. Sorry. It's funny though because that movie has got Burt Lancaster and Liz Scott and is vastly inferior to the other Burt Lancaster Liz Scott Liz Scott noir, which I mentioned last week. Um, Desert Fury, the one with the homoerotic yeah. Wendell Corey uh, John Hodiak relationship. So instead of seeing I Walk Alone, I think people should go watch Desert Fury. Well, speaking of John Hodiak, too, the uh, scene in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid where Steve Martin is <laughs> suffocated with a pillow by Vincent Price in the movie The Bribe <laughs> is, in fact, John Hodiak who's suffocated. <laughs> Which is like, we have just been dragging that poor big mouth man through the mud in like every episode for about a month now. Have you noticed that on Twitter, our recommendations inside the Basket Cast Twitter account are consistently featuring the John Hodiak like appreciation society? Am I the only one who's seeing those? I have noticed, yes. I have a lot of questions about that. It's a little weird. No, I, 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 I okay. I should make it. This is a caveat. We have been making fun of John Hodiak a lot just because it's easy to do because he's so <laughs> fucked up looking like a Muppet. But I do genuinely enjoy him. Uh, Lifeboat was on not too long ago and you're watching and you're like, God, John Hodiak, what he, what he was good was really good because what a wonderful performance. And 
Um, I don't know anything about him as a person. He could have been a shit heel, in which case I will take back my comment about how much I enjoy his performance in Lifeboat <laughs> and say that he didn't deserve Ann Baxter because he probably didn't. I mean, I'm just going to guess knowing how men are. He's good in Lifeboat. He is. I agree with that. He just never really had a lot of good roles, which I guess isn't technically his fault. Although if he were more interesting, maybe he would have. I don't know. But (laughs) that's one of the things I love about Hitchcock movies is that how often in those movies, either when Hitch consciously tried to cast against type, as I've discussed previously, or when Hitch just took the instructions from the studio and let it go, is how often you get to see actors who otherwise don't get meaty, dramatic roles shine. Uh, Hodiak and Lifeboat is a really good example. Um, Doris Day. Doris Day. Hitchcock's marvelous use of Farley Granger. I mean, you, you do get to see an extra dimension to a lot of actors who were not thought of as being particularly competent, I guess, um, or who at least never, in, in their height of stardom never got an opportunity to make movies with a lot of depth in terms of characterization obviously somebody like doris at least has something like you know love me or leave me or whatever but it's so wonderful to see how hitch could could elevate actors who were not being elevated by the studio structure for whatever reason and of course sometimes it accidentally it tricks people into thinking that certain people who frequently worked with hitch could act which sometimes is a lie <laughs> um jimmy stewart foremost amongst them <laughs> That's what's going to get us banned. That's what's going to get us kicked out of the larger classic film community is me gently ribbing Jimmy for delivering the same performance in every movie. I mean, same could be said for a multitude of actors, though. Like, Yeah, but people somehow have this thing about Jimmy where they think he's like, in terms of craft, he's like on par with John Garfield or whatever. And it's like, please not. not but true. <laughs> that's just not true. You want to delude yourself into believing that. I also love to see the man cry on camera, but it's not quite, you know, he's not quite there i don't think uh well last week i did say i would talk a little bit on the big sleep you know i did think it was quite a choice of them not to involve any lauren bacall clips at all which i think is it's kind of nice because it gives a lot of other female stars of noir a chance to shine but that being said as candace said last week it makes no sense the big sleep and that's largely because it was cut uh, and Lauren Bacall's part was obviously enlarged because of the public's fascination with the Bogey and Bacall pairing. The original was filmed in 1945 and sort of was recut to accommodate for this expansion of Bacall's part and a copy of that original version has been restored and released but I've never seen it but at the time of its 1946 release our favorite critic Bosley Crowther said the film leaves the viewer confused and dissatisfied and points out that Bacall is a dangerous looking female who still hasn't learned to act (laughs) (laughs) then in a quote that could easily be applied to this podcast time film critic James is it Agee yeah. Um, called the film Wakeful Fair for folks who don't care what is going on or why, so long as the talk is hard and the action is harder. The plot's crazily mystifying nightmare blur is an asset and only one of many. So I think that could easily be used to describe this podcast. Oh, absolutely. That's the same AG who co-wrote Night of the Hunter. Yeah, I I had a feeling it was. I mean, I can't keep track of all these men that we talk about. Another noted Francis D fan. (laughs) AG was one of Francis's defenders. Um, But but in terms of which films, the bogey films that are used in this film, um, there's three. There's In a Lonely Place, The Big Sleep, and Dark Passage. And I think that the one that I care about least is actually The Big Sleep. Dark Passage, as a concept, the feel like the, the plot in Dark Passage is, it's so nuts. You don't see Bogey's face for like 
half the film and it's like filmed from his perspective like it's not something that you see often in noir he has all the bandages on his face and it's like only halfway through that his face is revealed and it's like imagine going to get all that plastic surgery and you end up looking like (laughs) Humphrey Bogart (laughs) 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 and then in a lonely place too is I greatly enjoy that film despite some members of the cast we all know who but um I think that it plays on a lot of themes that are it plays on the concept of mistrusting a potential romantic partner and then the paranoia that comes with that in a really interesting way it could easily be applied today but in a completely different light Gloria Graham's fear that Bogey has killed someone could easily be translated into the fear that a female would have going into a new romantic relationship uh yeah I just think that it's much more I guess relevant today than perhaps the big slate would be I want to see an update of In a Lonely Place where instead of being set in the film industry, it is set in the cryptocurrency world. <laughs> That's where all the shady fucks who back in the day would be working in Hollywood, you know, breaking people's ankles to, you know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they're, I think they're working in tech now. <laughs> Big tech is like the fucking seediest, shadiest industry and they have so much money and power. If anyone needs to go down, it's them. Okay, so remake of In a Lonely Place where Bogey, who we brought back from the dead with CGI, right? Like the James Dean. It's this movie, but also he, the character is Elizabeth Holmes. (laughs) So it's Bogey playing a version of Elizabeth Holmes, like a fictionalized blood magnate in the tech world. And then I just, I love this idea. Oh my God. Imagine Bogey dressed as Steve Jobs. Imagine Bogey in jeans. The frizzy hair. He's got like a wolf. He's got a dog. that's just like a dog. And he's like, Dancing to can't touch this. I really want to see this. I really want to see. See, early you were like poo-pooing CGI bringing back of dead stars. But now. Now now that Bogey. Now that Bogey can do the Elizabeth Holmes story, I'm trying. I'm torn between whether I don't really necessarily want him to play Elizabeth Holmes, but I think it would be very funny if this because there's a lot of problems with that. But I do think it would be very funny if it were just a movie where Bogey is playing a character that is literally Elizabeth Holmes, but is just never named. Maybe <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of go kind of meta with it. Um, but like, also, it's it's Bogey's voice, but it's like dropped an octave lower. There's so much possibility here. Oh, I was also gonna say it's always been very sad to me about Dark Passage because people think the um, filmed from the actor's perspective bit as being so innovative in Dark Passage, and then people just shit on it relentlessly when it comes to Lady in the Lake, where Robert Montgomery plays Marlowe. And I've always thought that was so sad because Lady in the Lake is so much fun, and Montgomery really thought he, you know, he really thought he was doing something with that Robert went out there <laughs> Blobbert Montgomery and it just <laughs> was a, a train wreck and I feel so sad because then Dark Passage comes out I don't know which one came out first but um it's just sad that people think it's so cool in Dark Passage and then people think it's so tacky and stupid and, and like which I feel is just like reflective of Robert Montgomery's career as a whole tacky and stupid the Blobbert story uh they both came out in 19 19- oh no actually Lady in the Lake came out a year before. I knew it. See, exactly. It's like he pioneered that. And I mean, I don't think we can say that categorically. Yeah, I'm I can sure say it that categorically. No, Robert Montgomery was the first person <laughs> to ever step in front of or behind a camera. He was the first person to ever be a camera. He was the first person to ever have such full lips while simultaneously having such such thin hair. <laughs> um Rob Montgomery should have been in this movie. Who would who would Bob be? Who would Bob be in the Elizabeth Holmes story starring Humphrey Bogart? 
I thought you meant in, in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, and I was going to be like, hot legs. <laughs> yes, he, oh my, see, another lost opportunity. Hi, it's me, Rigby. Sorry, hot legs, I've been busy. Look, if you sashay over to your New York Times file, read me what's on page one, column six of the August 2nd issue. Maybe I'll wine and dine you some night soon. I'll wait. You'd wine and dine her for information? Her. Him. Yeah. Then read me the whole article. Emmer Essen. Walter Neff's the owner. Thanks, Hot Legs. I owe you a big one. <laughs> um, I don't know who he'd be in the Elizabeth Holmes story. Maybe Elizabeth Holmes' huge dog that she kept bringing into the office. <laughs> I was thinking maybe one of those, those engineers who was talking about how he's like, the product doesn't make any sense and it won't work because you can't fit it within this size. And Elizabeth Holmes being like, if you're not an innovator... <laughs> if you're not an innovator we're looking for dreamers we're looking for the next microsoft we're looking for the next apple you know that's my elizabeth holmes impression i think it's pretty good it was pretty um, good yeah this is an elizabeth holmes podcast right now sorry i just hijacked this podcast i'm sorry my my fantasy was just playing out there <laughs> i feel like you have some kind of like fan like it's like candace plays fantasy football but it's fantasy film casting and she does it every single episode <laughs> It's called creating a recognizable and consistent brand for consumers to connect with and to later monetize through some sort of partnership with Quip. Please use code Blobbert Montgomery for 25% off your first tooth extraction device when <laughs> you want to do home dentistry with Robert Montgomery. Yeah, well, I guess some of the other films we can talk about. I think one of the the most interesting ones that they use is White Heat. Like, I love the bit where Steve Martin is talking to him. He's just like, oh, pretend I'm your ma and just to say this. And I think it's quite a nice nod to what happens in White Heat, obviously with the now famous quote, made it ma, top of the world. I was going to say, the only clip that doesn't necessarily work for me might be Joan Crawford in Humoresque. Yeah. It's a little shoehorned. It's also because it's so short. Yeah, it might have been cut. There might have been a longer sequence that was cut. Because, like, the title of the movie comes from a scene that was Mm. ultimately cut. So, uh, who knows what else was originally meant to be included. Humoresque, too, is one of those, along with the Hitchcocks, I I don't really think of that as a noir. I don't know. No, I think Possessed. I'd probably go with Possessed or maybe, like, Flamingo Road or something like that like that flamingo road definitely got that seedy element to it or yeah i don't know i just i that movie the humorous it's clip is, has not really worked for me and i feel like it's a shame because i feel like there could be something that's a little stronger maybe yeah. maybe pulled in not all the sequences in this movie can be the double indemnity sequence which no. is a top 10 movie moments it should be on the afi <laughs> list of 100 heartwarming movie moments or something <laughs> like that knock down like harold russell in you know best years of our lives and just put it up there when he like um when he's like oh what's the name of your perfume and he goes fondle me <laughs> i'm crazy about you baby i'm crazy about you too walter perfume on your hair what's the name of it fondle me that's the name of the perfume and when he's like when he's leaving mcmurray's apartment and he's like tucking his outfit back on as if he really has just had intercourse with fred mcmurray (laughs) is such a funny gag too because the idea that this is how dedicated reardon is and like thing about it is that like you never get the sense that rigby is a particularly adept 
detective because obviously (laughs) the scene where he's watching Ava Gardner and his cigarettes burning through the newspaper, like obviously it's supposed to be a side gag and it's, you know, very funny, but he's like every single turn he does something really stupid. And again, that falls back on us laughing at him. He's inviting us to laugh at him, but it's not like in a really dumb way that you're laughing at him. Like it's still done really cleverly. Like a lot of people diminish sight gags and like visual comedy in that way like a lot of people hate you know silent comedy and slapstick they think that it's quite juvenile and they think that it's not ever as intricately constructed as a verbal joke would be but I would argue that you can have really well constructed and really thoughtfully crafted sight gags that are really subtle and are really effective in how they elevate the comedy and it just annoys me a lot when people dismiss comedy and particularly visual comedy it was just so annoying because i think honestly maybe the funniest moment in film history is the scene in duck soup where harpo marx puts his feet in that street vendor's vat of lemonade and just starts <laughs> pumping them he puts he starts pumping his feet like he's riding a bicycle and like the lemonade is splashing up out of of the of the vat it's so annoying to me when people diminish the value of a good sight gag i think it comes from a a point of, of chauvinism in terms of, of terms of comedy because we're in an age where it's like it's a mix between people thinking that you can be that it's only funny if it's vulgar and that it's only funny if it pushes boundaries and some sort of like metaphysical you know what is comedy you know Mm. mind bullshit way and sometimes it's just a a good sight gag it just really gets back to the roots of comedy which is the idea of a shared experience of of not having to explain the joke you know yeah yeah. Um, it's immediately, it can immediately grasp, it transcends language, which is another thing. I think there's also a little bit of cultural paternalism at play, maybe, and people denigrating sight gags and denigrating, especially sight gags in silent cinema, because the idea was that it had to play worldwide. You know, it mm-hmm. had to make sense to as many people in Croatia as it did in Canoga Park, California. You know, people had to understand what was going on. And then, of course, it was the brilliance of somebody like a Harold Lloyd or a Buster Keaton of being able to create something that touched as many people in, in rural French villages, you know, uh, as it did back in in the industry itself. And that's because also those people are not funny and they will never be funny. I think that would probably lead us to talking about the final sequence in this film, which doesn't involve any outside clips and it's quite left of field i think the whole film is telegraphing one way and then suddenly there are nazis but it's it's so hilarious like suddenly there's Karl reiner in his you know otto preminger best the thing about it is is that you you never think it doesn't fit in with the rest of the movie how did they use daddy simple when Bullethead here found out your father had developed a cheese mold so powerful it could decompose rocks, trees, and mountains, he devised a plan to dissolve the entire United States. First, your father unknowingly gave this swine information because... Please, Mr. Reardon, allow me to tell the story. Your father went along because... Mr. Reardon, it is customary in these situations for the developer of the plan to describe it. I beg your pardon. It's also customary for the private eye to tell how he figured it out. No, it is my right. I am always frustrated when people don't think that comedy works on an intellectual level and shouldn't be rewarded as such. Because 
It's so hard to make a good-natured comedy film. And this one is so good and it's so wonderful at celebrating cinema, at celebrating noir, at celebrating just even the trappings of old Hollywood in a way that so many drama films about the same era, even like the artist, fail to do. It just frustrates me every single time that I see comedy being overlooked as a serious genre for um, celebration. As we know, it's really hard to make somebody laugh and it's much easier to make them cry. There are so many films that deserve to have won Best Picture when they were just never even considered for it because they have so much more presence and cognizance within the public consciousness. Robocop 2. Robocop 2. No, I was thinking more about um, comedy films of the 1980s, like if we're talking about Ghostbusters and things like that, that have such a, a legacy within the public consciousness that is just never acknowledged as being worthy of tangible reward. I mean, like critics obviously liked Ghostbusters, but it was never, ever going to be considered as a best picture uh, when really it should have been. I think you brought up Ghostbusters to deflect from the fact that you were absolutely thinking about RoboCop 2. But okay, we'll move on. When Tiff and I do our series on RoboCop and RoboCop 2, we'll get into how much I love Hell yeah. RoboCop. No, you're right. I think like look at um look at Preston Sturges is a really good example. People at the time didn't quite grasp a lot of what Sturges was going for, and at, as a result, his movies have really taken on kind of this this fame years later. Because even though at the time, you know, he was, he, you know, he did get receive Oscar nominations and all those things, you know, he was obviously well respected within the industry and he was, you know, highly paid, at least for a brief period. Of course, he, his star falls so soon in his career and um, his kind of grand visions of what comedy can be and what comedy can say and who comedy can be directed at and what comedy is permitted to laugh at and who is permitted to laugh at it would now be termed kind of the comedy of punching up, not punching down, was was very much ahead of his time. I f- think that the Academy in particular has always had a very difficult and at times even openly hostile relationship with comedy because for a long time, comedy was, in addition with a lot of other uh, genres that are not typically well received by the Academy, Westerns, you know, whatever horror, yeah, westerns, horror, the things that keep the lights on in movie theaters, there is that same kind of uh, a sense of holding it at arm's length. There are a couple comedies that are, are allowed to allowed to thrive within that environment. You know, you, you have a kind of those those brief moments where some a comedian is in the spotlight. I mean, I think Marie Dressler is a great example um, of somebody who, who receives that critical acclaim, but then it, it ebbs and it flows. And there's very much, there's that same contempt for comedy that there is a, that there is for a lot of other genres that really are the economic engine of the industry. It's kind of like, yeah, like a almost like an elitism, like the the populist genres that are popular with the actual movie going public are looked down upon. That being said, I still don't think a Marvel movie should ever win Best Picture. <laughs> well, I think it's also because Marvel Marvel movies are what like I mean, going back to westerns, the idea of like what an Audie Murphy western was in the nineteen forties. They make up they made up fuckload of money and everybody went to see them they were part of the cultural conversation but they contributed very little in terms of lasting impact and when you compare them to westerns that were produced contemporaneously that are that are 
of higher quality or greater artistic significance. They pale. An Audie Murphy movie and uh, like Red River are not on the same level. And I feel like sometimes these people think that just because the Marvel movies have Scarlett Johansson or Robert Downey Jr. or whoever in them, they should be treated on the same level as other Scarlett Johansson or Robert Downey Jr. movies, which is like... That's never going to happen. I'm sorry. It's also the assembly line factor, right? Where I'm going to say it, Scorsese's right. It's the theme park comparison is right to me. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, it's fine if you like going to see Marvel movies, if you have fun at a Marvel movie, whatever. I go to Marvel movies with my brother because he likes them and I they're not changing my life. I'm not a fan personally, but whatever. It's fun. It's what it is. People like them. That's fine. But they're, it's, it's just, it's a different thing. It's a different aim. It's trying for something different. Whereas a lot of these genres that have been overlooked in terms of critical assessment, like comedy, they have so much to offer and so much, I don't want to say artistic merit, because then we're going to get into the whole, you know, like, who's the gatekeeper of what's art and what's not, blah, blah, blah. But it's just two different types of entertainment. And people get so defensive about it. And it's like, fuck, it's fine. It's okay if a Marvel movie isn't like high art. You don't have to pretend it's fucking high art. And I would also be very interested to, this is a total swerve, but take a real look at when that sort of elitism within the Academy happened because, you know, like, it happened one night, one best picture. I mean, it's like, look at what's going on right now. I'm, again, dating this episode, but in terms of the current cultural conversation, there's this huge uproar in the literary world because um, there was a, a story from a small, otherwise, quite frankly, irrelevant school in, like, North Dakota or whatever, where a student expressed that they she didn't believe that a YA novel for teenagers belonged on a reading list for college juniors. And instead, she suggested a book by uh, Edwidge Dantica about racism and um, the criminal justice system. And she got roasted to hell and back by a bunch of white middle-aged YA writers on Twitter for mocking teenage girls and bullying them and and doubting their mental acuity when it's like, and I went off on a little bit of a Twitter rant about this in response, but it's very frustrating to me because it's like, look, yes, they're books for children because a teenager is a child and they're entertainment and that's all well and good, but they're meant for children and a university is not a place for children. And if children are at a university, it's because they're some sort of genius super baby. (laughs) And they should not be reading this shit, you know? Uh, the, people are so afraid to categorize anything they enjoy as entertainment because it has to be art. And you know what? Like, a great movie I enjoy personally is Chopping Mall, the 1980 <laughs> slasher movie about robots who roam a shopping mall after dark to obliterate teens with lasers. Yeah, and we've you know seen what? it. We, we read the word <laughs> robot in the description and we were just like, hell yeah, get it on. Yes. Yeah. Chopping Ball to me is a great movie. And, but again, is it art? Probably not. Is it wonderful entertainment? Yes. yes. Does, it, does it titillate and excite me? And do I dream of it every night? You know, well, well, well. <laughs> I think the thing that really has changed over time is the concept of individualism and hyper individualism and the fact that people now find their own interests to be really personal and they take any slight against something that they're interested in really personal Mm -hmm. they will not accept criticisms of things they like because they take them as criticisms against themselves yeah and it's just like you can enjoy something and still be critical of it you don't need to accept every single aspect of something in order to like it you can have a conflicted relationship with 
things that you like. I'm not saying that you should like Woody, Woody Allen because you shouldn't. It's not that debate of you can separate art from the artist because honestly, Woody Allen should burn in hell and so should all of his movies. But, you know, you don't need to take things personally. Not every conversation about a particular thing is an attack on you personally. If someone says, oh, the Avengers suck, I'm sick of seeing these movies, it's not an invitation for you to be like, wow, they're saying that everything that I believe in is terrible and that's just not on. It's so much of it boils down to anti-intellectualism because critical thought is so uncool. <laughs> Tearing down yeah. shit is cool, obviously. Mm. You know, that's cool. We all, we love we love a good call-out culture, you know, but um, we love a good, we love a good social media cancellation. But being critical about media itself in terms of why do we enjoy it and is this something that necessarily is fruitful for us to defend in public and lay our lives on the line for, like, sorry to other people, but, you know, my baby cartoon for babies is not something that I'm willing to go out there and just, that's not a hill I want to die on. And it's the same sense that as somebody who enjoys, somebody whose life really is only exclusively given meaning by media produced in, in the 20th century, I, I it's unfathomable to me the idea that any criticism of what you enjoy is a criticism of, of you directly and personally and you should take it that way because you know what? A lot of these movies are racist and sexist and um, horrendously dated and they're xenophobic. They're they're whatever you know that they're, they're they're all these things and more and yeah you know what i can look at this with a critical eye and i can appreciate those elements that aren't aren't that and i can understand without excusing or making any sort of apology for the culture in which they were made the environment in which they were made i can recognize that people at the time found them offensive and that they advocated against them and that they were ignored by the studio structure because they were oftentimes racist or sexist or whomever, you know, whatever, whatever you have uh, themselves. And also because they were primarily driven by making money because that's just, that's the truth. And it's like, what is it with this allergy towards the truth? You know, why, why are we allergic towards like level headed evaluation of material? Uh, it's very strange to me. And I know it's not a 21st century thing necessarily. I know it's not an isolated case, but I think the internet has made it so much worse. Oh, absolutely. Like everyone on the internet is like one step away from being mobs with pitchforks. When you think about it, like they're literally the mob from Frankenstein ready to cancel whoever and whatever without actually having a thought by themselves. I think what's what's grating about it is the fact that people don't have the courage of their convictions. And I think the people that I admire most are the people who are willing to they're willing to put their money where their mouth is, as it were. And so much of this this kind of passive degradation is like I don't know, like a drive-by thing. And it's like, no, I, I, if, if you, you're willing to reckon with material, then you, you should do it wholeheartedly and you should do it intellectually. And it shouldn't be some sort of performative thing. You know, I feel like for a lot of people, acknowledging the issues with what they enjoy or what they consume is is performative. You know, it's superficial. They just want to make a, a brief mea culpa, you know, so that then they can go back to jacking off to ponies or whatever. Like, you know, I recognize this is weird. Did you know that I took a class in gendered communication from the Department of Women's Studies? Anyway, let me tell you more about my jack off ponies. I mean, it's just like, I, I, I hate that. I hate that sense that as long as you admit that there's something wrong or could be perceived as wrong with with your hobby then it's like oh then it's all good it's all cool and it's like no you still have to continue to engage 
thoughtfully with that material. It doesn't just become kind of this, 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 I don't know, it just, it feels so disingenuous to me. It feels like people are not truly interested in exploring all those topics and seeing from other people's perspectives and understanding why they find certain things offensive. And I guess now that we're spinning, I'm spinning this off as sort of like cancel culture ramp, but it's like, oh, I see why you think that this is, you know, racist but um i'm gonna continue to enjoy it because that doesn't matter to me you know i'm not actually gonna take any of your opinions into account but i'm gonna make a vague enough statement on my twitter to keep from being canceled yeah it's like the rallying cry on social media is literally let people enjoy things if you dare speak out against fucking like a marvel movie or whatever you get 25 replies of that comic that's like let people enjoy things right and it's just building a bubble around yourself that's like i'm not stopping you from enjoying enjoying anything when i say i don't like a movie i'm not busting into your house and breaking all your fucking spider-man dvds like i you're perfectly welcome to enjoy things i have seen the amy adams movie leap year dozens of times and that is a horrible movie and deeply misogynistic and deeply problematic and very very bad and i love it and i watch it all the time uh, not all the time i love <laughs> you you do watch it all the time i've seen, seen it, it at least what like three times yeah i've probably together. seen it once a year for like a couple of years at this point but it's trash and i know it's trash and i can still enjoy it and also think about all the ways it's very very bad it really is like just oh don't don't make me confront anything ever yeah, yeah. <laughs> i guess the thing is it's cowardice it's intellectual yeah. cowardice and i find that repugnant well to loop this background to oh, yeah. dead <laughs> sorry no no it's fine we can loop it around because there are comments on this type of thing, critical analysis of this genre within Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, like down to Steve Martin kissing the unconscious Juliet and then, you know, the whole adjusting the boobs thing. Like, yeah, it is a comment on the sexual inequality that existed in those movies. And so, like, it's done and it's a critical assessment of those things and it's acknowledging that those things happened and those themes existed without sweeping them under the rug and I I appreciate that too because it's not it's not just saying wow it wasn't this all great look at all of this fun things it encourages you to think critically as well which I think is another level of this movie that makes it so enjoyable because it's like really it's encouraging you to engage with these older films on a number of levels. I think a really good example of that is when he goes to visit Veronica Lake to get her assistance with something and he's like, and she was a girl who would do anything for anybody at any time and he goes to visit her and she's just like, no. And he's like, okay, and then he has to leave. (laughs) There's one thing I liked about Monica. The words I can't weren't in her vocabulary. Monica, I want you to do something for me. I can't. Well, I guess she'd added them since the last time I'd seen her. <laughs> it's like that sense of the, the woman who's always available, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, the woman who's willing to do anything, you know, for the right the right price, the right Richard Conti schlong. <laughs> I also wanted to mention um, the uh, the cross-stitch, the oh, yes. Philip Marlowe quote cross-stitch gag, which again is very Tiffany Todd. I'm very tempted to try to figure out those patterns, yeah. You should. Yeah, I just, it's everything about this movie. There's so many layers, so many different planes that it operates on that make it so enjoyable, especially for film lovers. So I think I'll wrap up this very disparate episode 
Um, with some contemporary reviews of the film at the time. Um, it was a bit of a mixed bag with how it was received by critics. There were some people who thought that it didn't work, some people who thought it did. And so in his review for Newsweek magazine, David Anson wrote, Is it a one-joke movie? Perhaps. It's an engaging joke that everyone who loves old movies will find irresistible. And anyone who loves Steve Martin, which is everyone, uh, will be fascinated by his sly performance which is pitched exactly between the low comedy of the jerk and the highbrow Brechtianisms of Pennies from Heaven. Um, and then we have Vincent Canby, who's he reviewed The Thing as well. And I just, I realized that all the films that I've covered so far have been from 1982. I will say that I have seen films before and after this point, and I will talk about them at some point. But his review was, um, the film has an actor who's one of America's best sketch artists, a man blessed with a great sense of timing, who's also self-effacing enough to meet the most cockeyed demands of the material. And I think that's true. Like, I don't think this could have worked with anybody else. Steve Martin, I think, operates on a level where he could he could easily be a leading man in one of these films in the 1940s, but he's still so hilarious that he can work on a comedic level as well. Like, if we think of other comics of the time, like, this definitely couldn't have been, like, Chevy Chase. The last review I have here is not as positive as the first two. It's Time Magazine's Richard Corliss. And he says that the gag works for a while as Martin weaves his own plot web into the 18 old movies. But pretty soon he's traveling on old goodwill and flop sweat. So I was like, well, it's not very, it's unkind. And I don't think, at no point during this movie do I think that the joke gets tired. I think that it is um, incorporated cleverly enough in each part for it not to feel like it's the same joke over and over again which it could have easily fallen into that trap. I think with the magic of Steve Martin and the wonder of the writing and everything in it, that it never feels like it's the same joke over and over and over again. It always feels like it's important to the story that we get this next part and we get this next part and we get this next part. And I just think that really that's at the heart of a good movie. This film is the perfect film for old film lovers. I don't know if that made any sense, but who cares? But I will say, uh, if you love old movies and you've never seen this movie, please give it a go. It's just delightful to see someone engaging with all of these older films and actors and having such a wonderful time with it. I agree. Uh, next week on the docket, uh, we have two lighthearted approaches to child abandonment. <laughs> um, one original and one remake from two different decades. So that's a hint. So you can figure that out. We're trying to be a little bit more mysterious with our upcoming episodes because we want you to keep listening. We're not giving you the opportunity to say, I don't want to tune in next week. But we have some really good, we have some some really good Christmas programming. um, And then well into New Year's, we have some good Christmas, New Year's programming. Um, We're going to be decade hopping a little bit. Um, We have one particular movie that I think is going to be a real treat. Well, two movies, actually, because it's going to be a double, uh, it's going to be a bonus app, a double feature. And I think that will be very fun to listen to. Um, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BasketPod. We're on Spreaker. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on Overcast. Um, Leave us a little wink on your preferred app or website that would be sweet yeah it's just nice to hear from you guys hear how you're enjoying the show i mean you can tell us what you're not enjoying too but i'll have tiff 
redact those comments before I read them. <laughs> because as we've established, Amelia is only going to be doing movies from the year 1982 from now on. So anyone who's tuning in for old Hollywood, we're going to try and mix it up so you never know when Amelia is going to come popping in with an Eddie Murphy feature. I mean, it's not on purpose. It's just happened that way. I have seen films made before 1980. Um, but also, we shouldn't be snobs. This is a film cut for that. No, that's not a word. This is a film podcast for the people, and I'm people, so. <laughs> that's a good point. You are people. I we am are people. We're people. We're all people. Movies for people. All right. Uh, I think that is a better time in it as any to uh, sign off. So, bye. <laughs> bye. Bye. <laughs> Happy November. I, wow, that's just gone from my fucking head. Blade Runner. Blade Runner. <laughs> wow, I had it and then it's just gone. I thought you were waiting for us to go in and I was like, I'll let Tiff No, out. I just, it, my brain just went. Tiff voice, Blade Runner. <laughs> shut down. It's really hard to describe the plot of movies. I'll just say that. Yeah, I know. I feel like every time we talk about a movie, we're like, and and then, and, and, then? and then, like a kid recounting a day at a theme park or something. And then I threw up. You go on Jeopardy, and the question is, what year was Gene Crane born? It's a, it's a very threatening concept. Does it get cold in the outback, or is it... At night, yeah, at night, yeah. Uh, it does in the desert. Like, just as any desert does, it gets cold Well, I night. don't know. You guys are upside down. That's what I meant.